uh, I realize that uh, reading the, the book of Revelation can make a lot of people nervous uh, because there's lots of weird symbols, strange imagery, lots of, again, in that what we just read, there's a lot there which is like, what did I, what, what am I looking at? What am I reading? What's going on here? Um, but whether you recognize it or not, Revelation 12 is actually about something that's very familiar, very familiar event. This is the Apostle John's account of the birth of Jesus. This is the Apostle John's account of the birth of Christ. But rather than featuring fluffy sheep and uh, a straw-filled manger, instead we, we get a woman screaming in labor with a dragon about to eat her child. Uh, as one commentator, Eugene P- Peterson, put it, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Why is Revelation so strange, so weird? Well, I would suggest to you that its strangeness is actually designed to help us, to help us understand the real, true, genuine spiritual realities that are all around us, all around you and me today in London in the 21st century, as well as for the original recipients of this letter. Think about this. Um, in the pre-digital era, it seems so long ago now, but in the pre-digital era, uh, thinking about how photographs were developed, right? Before you had photographs, in order to develop them, you developed them from a negative, right? And a, a negative, uh, they were called negatives because they were exactly the opposite, the, the reverse of what the photograph would uh, look like once it was developed once the process had taken place. And so light appears dark, and the colors themselves are reversed on the spectrum. Um, And so if you look at a negative, it's bizarre. What am I looking at? But what what the, the negative shows you is something which is really there in front of the camera lens. You're just seeing it from a different perspective. All right. And that's what John is doing here. It's as if he's pulling back the curtain on the genuine, real spiritual realities all around you and me today, the spiritual world around us, and helping us see things from a different angle, a different vantage point, a different perspective. And here's his point for us this morning. Christ our King has defeated the devil. Christ our King has defeated the devil, and that reality has implications then for how you and I live now in 21st century London. And so John unveils three key things that we need to know uh, if we're to follow Jesus faithfully in this hostile world. Uh, First, shows us a true source of conflict. A true source of conflict. Second, he shows us the true character of Christ. And then thirdly, he's going to show us the true nature of life in this world. Uh, So first, the true source of conflict. If someone were to ask you, where does most of the conflict in your life come from? How would you answer? Um, For some, it might be, you know, You're avoiding looking at the person next to you in the pew. Uh, But it could be a spouse or a significant other. Um, 
It could be a, 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 a boss or a coworker who's particularly a, a nuisance at work. Uh, it could be a neighbor uh, who's always seems to be uh, prying into your affairs. It could be your children. Maybe it's your finances, which is a source of most of the conflict in your life. Well, John would hear those answers that we might give him, and he would politely respond, rubbish. That's actually not the source of any of your conflict. Those are just perhaps just intermediary things, but the fights that you and I experience on a daily basis, he says, they're actually symptoms, symptoms of a far deeper problem, which John paints here in terms of a cosmic war. That's what we glimpse in these two greats up here in the heavens. In verse 1, in verse 1, you have this pregnant woman in the agony of labor. And she at least initially calls to mind Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. But then notice how she's described, her clothing in particular. It says that she's clothed with the sun and the moon and 12 stars. These are the same features that we find in uh, Joseph's dream. Back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 37, when Joseph dreamed of his father, Jacob, and his mother, and all his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, bowing down to him. And so this woman also represents the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel. But you can go even further back in time, just as we read earlier from uh, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. God had given Adam and Eve a simple command. Do not eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You can eat of any other tree except for this one. But then into the garden crept the serpent. Uh, in the, or in Satan in the form of a serpent. Uh, and he tempted Eve. And he, 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 and uh, she and Adam rebelled against God, believing the lie that the serpent told her, you will not die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Take your life into your hands, Eve. This is your chance. They believed the lie of the serpent, and they ate the forbidden fruit, and that's where it all began. All conflict, all violence, all racism, all injustice and oppression, even all sickness, disease, death, All bitterness, every single broken promise that you have experienced, all can be traced to this event, Garden of Eden, where human beings rebelled against their good and loving creator. And where we, by nature, we join in with the serpent and we lift our fists in God's face. And we too join in rebellion. But when God arrives in judgment on Adam and Eve, as we read about earlier, in the midst of pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, he also provides a note of hope, a promise of forgiveness. This is not the end. This is not the last word. I'm going to provide a rescue. I'm going to provide a a, a child, a Messiah, a rescuer, who is going to come and deliver you from the curse of sin and death. In the midst of where we would expect God to just obliterate them, instead he declares war, not on them, 
but on the serpent. There will be enmity between your seed, Eve, and the serpent's seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And since then, with each generation, those who have trusted God in the Old Testament were waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this rescuer, waiting for this child who would be born, who would deliver God's people from the curse and crush the head of the serpent, a rescuer who would save us and deliver us from ourselves. Dennis Johnson, uh, who wrote a fantastic commentary on the book of Revelation called Triumph of the Lamb, in, in that commentary he said this, Ever since the expulsion from Eden, God's people have been an expectant mother, awaiting the birth of the seed who would champion their cause against Satan, the liar, the accuser, and the murderer. So all of redemptive history since then, from Eve to Mary, is summed up in this image of this pregnant woman in the throes of labor, on the verge of giving birth to the Messiah. She's screaming in agony. She's helpless. She's vulnerable. It's a very intimate picture. But who's there waiting then with her? Who's waiting to catch the baby? It's not her husband. It's not a midwife. It's a dragon. In verse 9, John makes clear that this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head is that same ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Here, though, the disguise is off. You can see him for who he is. He's not just a, you know, a garden snake rustling along in the grass. He's a fearsome, fearful dragon. And he's standing in front of this woman with mouth open, ready to devour her child the moment that he's born. And in an instant, as it were, this, this dream, this vision becomes a nightmare like a nightmare that we might have today. You come around the corner and then suddenly there's this monster in front of you. That's what we have here. This child is about to be born, but there's a dragon waiting to devour the child. The vision is uh, upended and the Messiah is going to be murdered, it seems. God's promise is going to become nothing, void, of no consequence. The dragon, it seems, is on the verge of victory. Now, if this is the uh, negative, if this is the bizarre angle, as it were, on this spiritual reality, what's the positive, the developed image? What does that look like? Well, all we'd have to do is turn to Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus to see Because remember that the wise men, before going to Bethlehem, they go first to King Herod. And they tell him that a baby is going to be born who is king of the Jews. And Herod, a jealous, cruel old man who killed even his own children to consolidate his power, he sees Jesus as a threat. And so he eventually orders the death of every child, every male child in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. But it's not just Herod. All throughout redemptive history, God's promise 
is, is like a scarlet thread that comes within a hair of being severed. Cain and Abel. Saul and David. Esther and Haman. Josiah and Athaliah. Over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, the circumstances may differ, but in each of those situations, God's promises come down to a single individual. It seems like the, that line of the Messiah is going to get cut off and the dragon will win. And the same, friends, is true in, in our lives as well. Because the dragon still is inspiring and influencing men and women to attack and, dis- and, and seek to destroy God's people. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not saying, friends, that we should then be finding Satan behind every rock or uh, behind every tree. That's, you know, a lot of the negative things in your life aren't because, you know, a demon did it. But we shouldn't discount it as if it's not real. If we don't recognize that this is a real conflict, a real spiritual war that we're in, we're going to get distracted by the symptoms of the conflict. You and I, we're going to see each other as our true enemies. We're going to see our, our, our boss or employers or employees or coworkers as the source of our conflict. We're going to see our finances as a source of our conflict rather than recognizing that we are in a real spiritual war and we're going to lose an active sense of dependence on Jesus. And that leads to the second point, the true character of Christ. Uh, So this nightmare vision takes an unexpected turn um, because just before the Messiah is devoured by the dragon, in verse 5, it says in verse 5, he's caught up to God and to his throne. And in one phrase, John summarizes for us the whole ministry of Jesus from birth to an ascension. And in a way, it's almost anticlimactic. You were expecting a fight. You were expecting a brawl to break out. But it doesn't. And that itself conveys something true and real as well. In this spiritual war there's really no chance of the dragon winning. Despite all appearances, despite every opportunity he has, God will be the victor. Jesus will triumph. Um, Seen from the perspective of heaven, there is no contest here. John here is is basically in this one line summarizing the hymn that Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, how Christ entered our world, humbled himself, and took on human nature. Or as Paul talks about in Galatians 3, Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law. In other words, Jesus is portrayed here as an obedient Messiah. The obedient son of God. He's the last Adam, standing in our place and doing what the first Adam should have done, obeying his father in heaven. 
When the serpent slithered into Eden that fateful morning, Adam should have, rather than letting his wife listen to her, Adam should have ripped that snake down from the tree and stomped on it. But he didn't. But this is what Jesus does for us, friends. He crushes the head of the serpent. He is in that way then not simply the obedient Messiah, but also the exalted Messiah. Because having obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he is lifted up. He ascends to the Father's right hand where he reigns and rules. And this is the same thing that Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 18, right before he ascends back to the Father. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is who he is. He's the exalted Messiah. And that authority is demonstrated in verses 7 through 9 of our text. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. So while war is taking place uh, in uh, on earth between the dragon and the woman... War is also at the same time taking place in heaven above between Michael and the angels of God and, and the dragon and his angels. And this is like a brawl in a pub, all right? This is a fight. But when Jesus arrives in heaven, the fight ends. It's interesting. Note how nonchalantly uh, John describes the, the conflict here. He, he says, yeah, they were fighting back. But then they weren't. And then there wasn't really place found for them anymore. So they got thrown out. Um, what happened? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess because John tells us in, in verse 10 what happens. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Christ, the authority of his Christ, the authority of the Messiah has been instituted. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and nothing can stand against him, friends. Satan is powerless against the arrival of God's Redeemer in heaven. And what were, the sa- what were Satan and the angels doing, the demons doing in, in heaven in the first place? Well, they accuse, we're told in in the Old Testament, that they accuse God's people there in God's courtroom before the just judge. Uh, In Zechariah chapter 3, we get a picture of Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest, uh, who represents there the people of God. Um, Satan knows that we're sinners. He knows what you and I do in the darkness when we think no one else is watching he knew that those whom God has chosen for salvation, we, we don't meet God's standard. 
We're sinners. We're fallen. We cannot keep God's law. And as a result, knowing God's standard and knowing our hearts, he accuses us day and night that we rightly deserve the condemnation of God. In fact, there is no good reason why we shouldn't be judged until the Messiah arrives in heaven. Why did Jesus' arrival there make such a difference? Well, Jesus is not just the obedient Messiah and the exalted Messiah, but he's also the suffering Messiah. Look again at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is hearkening back here to a scene from Revelation 5 where John weeps because no one, uh, there is a scroll that's been, that the uh, Ancient of Days is holding on the throne. And no one is found worthy in heaven or earth to break it open. And like a dream, he knows that's a bad thing. He knows that this is a bad thing, that no one can even look at this scroll. But then he hears someone say the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. But when he looks up, he doesn't see a conquering king. Instead, he sees a lamb that looks like it's been slain coming up to the throne and he takes the scroll. He is the Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice who covers our sin. His death has satisfied God's wrath towards us. His blood has covered us. And all our sins are nailed to the cross, friends. There is nothing now that stands between you and God, if you are trusting in Jesus, you face a defeated foe and Jesus tosses your accuser out of the courtroom. That's what he has done. And that then leads to the third point, very briefly, the true nature of our life in this world. Uh, John describes here our experience in this world in three ways. First, we are a persecuted people. Look at verse 13. Uh, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. You know, as the people of God, he's saying, we are hunted and pursued by the dragon. Now, even though Satan has been dealt a, a death blow, he's still a, a vicious enemy who's seeking to do as much harm as he can. It's a little bit like uh, after D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, Nazi Germany was as good as done. The end of the war was inevitable. Hitler had lost too many men, too much equipment. But he ordered his troops to fight for every inch of ground and made the war far more costly than it had to be and prolonged it by nearly a year. That's what Satan has done and is doing now. Jesus has defeated him. Jesus has dealt him a death blow, and he knows it. And so he's going to oppose the people of God as fiercely and as viciously as he can for as long as he's able. And that notice, too, we are, secondly, a provided-for people. So we're a persecuted people, but then also a provided-for people. Look at verse 6 again. The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then skip forward to verse 14. Uh, the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle 
so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. God has provided us a, a place that, the place that we're in now, not, not necessarily this physical building. Um, but he has put you and us as a body of believers in the situation, in the circumstances that, that we are in now. He's provided for us. He hasn't abandoned us or forgotten us. And remember the complaint of the, the people of Israel in the wilderness where, uh, why have you brought us into the wilderness, God, to die? Ironically, though, God had brought them into the wilderness to live away from the threat of death under their cruel taskmasters, the Egyptians, who truly did want to destroy them as a people. God brought them into the wilderness to live. And then God did not abandon them in the wilderness either. He gave them manna each day to eat and meat as well and provided them with water from the rock. And friends, it's the same with God's now today. We too are in a wilderness. We too, and you may find your lives dry and dusty, hot, especially this summer. But God is with you, and God is walking with you through uh, these times and these trials, friends. He's making a way for you. And thirdly, we're a pilgrim people. So we're a persecuted, provided for, and also a pilgrim people, and we're on our way to the promised land. Uh, We are a people of the gaps. We live in this in-between time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, And that's indicated three times in this passage uh, in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, where John points out that this time that we're in is limited. He puts a specific number of days on it. It's fixed. Unlike this sermon, which may seem like it's never going to have an end, this time that we're in will have an end. It will have an end. Uh, And when he comes, when Jesus returns, it will be with grace and forgiveness. But he also comes, friends, those who aren't trusting in him, with judgment. It's the day of the Lord. The day when everyone must stand before his throne and give an account for the deeds done in the body. When we will face our maker Face the one who redeems a people for himself. And we will either welcome him gladly or we will treat him with scorn and contempt. And we'll receive his judgment in return. Look at how, look at verse five. How is this baby described? John says he's the one who was to rule with a rod of iron. And if you know your Old Testament, that phrase is a quote from Psalm two. Psalm 2, where the Messiah, this king of the son of David, he will come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. And this phrase only occurs twice in the book of Revelation. Here, in Revelation 12, and the second time in Revelation 19. In Revelation 12, this baby is caught up to heaven. In Revelation 19, the heavens open. And that baby comes back. But he's no longer a baby anymore. He's a conquering king with eyes like a flame of fire, brilliant white clothing, riding on a white horse at the head of the the, the, the hosts of heaven, coming back 
to restore all things as they should be, to right all wrongs, to end all injustice, and to bring righteousness and peace upon the earth. He comes not to cast Satan out of heaven, but to cast Satan out of earth into the lake of fire along with all those who are allied to him. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, I urge you, bend the knee. Rest upon him, on his finished work. He is the conquering king who is also the Lamb of God who bled and died to rescue you to make atonement for your sins so that you might stand before him too, blameless and clothed in his righteousness. Pardoned with this declaration of not guilty upon you and welcomed into his family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you and give you glory that you are, uh, that you have sent your son Jesus to be that conquering king who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, but who first came as the lamb that was slain. And he is worthy to receive all praise and honor and blessing and power and dominion and might forever and ever because he laid down his own life for us, for sinners, for those who don't deserve mercy. And yet it's been poured out in abundance upon us. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, we pray, for our insolence and our rebellion. I pray that your spirit would convict us and draw us and lead us to Jesus, that blessed, lovely Lamb of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.